Welcome back, podcast fans. I'm your host, Annette Hines. This is Parenting Impossible, the special needs survival podcast. Thanks so much for coming back. Um, If you're new here, thank you so much for joining and giving it a try. I would love to have your feedback. I love, love, love all of your reviews and your ratings. Please keep them coming. We love that. Today's episode, very heartwarming. So a lot of times on this show, I am talking about the dark side of medicine and how things are not working well. Well, we're just turning that around today and we're having a wonderful conversation with Erin Prosser, a mom who, uh, no joke, really like deserves a mom of the year award. If somebody out there actually gives out those awards, can you just call me so we can get you in touch with Erin because uh, she really does deserve it. But she has been working with Dr. B in Philadelphia and, you know, the, this, these two just teamed up from almost literally day one for her daughter, Lucy, who they call Lulu. And um, they have been just a great team. It's really heartwarming. And they have some great tips on how to make that work. Uh, I did not have such a great experience out the gate, but eventually... I learned how to seek out the, those great medical professionals because they are out there and how to develop and also how to, um, how to grow that kind of relationship with your medical providers for your child and then eventually your adult child that you need. It's, you need to nurture those relationships so that they grow and that you can maintain them over time. It's not easy, just like any relationship. And sometimes those relationships, they run their course and it's time to, you know, develop new relationships. So this is a great example of how a relationship between a family caregiver or an individual with a disability or a special uh, healthcare condition can work with a medical provider. So I hope you really enjoy this episode today. And I hope that you will take something from it. Please, please share your feedback with me. I will always tag you in social. If you have something that you want to direct message me about, please send us your ratings and reviews. And as always, keep listening. Thank you so much. We, um, We have had recently such a growth in listeners. I am super excited about that and am forever grateful for all of you out there. Thank you. And here we go. So today I have two wonderful guests with me, Erin Prosser and Dr. Bergfist, who I hope I said that right. Did I say that right? Oh, that is fine. It's better. (laughs) (laughs) Dr. B, as I've been told. So we may stick with Dr. B because that is easier to say. And we are so excited to be talking about Erin's family story and her daughter, Lucy, who she calls Lulu, which is such a wonderful nickname. I love it. And we want to talk a little bit about how to how to manage and maneuver uh, with a kiddo with rare disease how to manage and maneuver through the medical system, which can be very challenging. And it is definitely my own story as well. 
So I want to introduce Erin first. Welcome, Erin. Thank you for coming on the show. How are you doing today? Oh, good. Thank you, Annette. Thanks for having me. Excited to talk to you today. Yeah. So why don't you start by just, you know, telling us a little bit about yours and Lucy's story. Sure. Um, but Lucy was born May 3rd, 2018. She was, I like to say, perfect for about two days. And then um, day three is when we started noticing uh, we hadn't even, I had had a C-section with her. Um, otherwise, typical pregnancy, I had been through, this was my second, she's my second child. I have an older son who was two at the time. Um, so this wasn't my first go around, um, my second C-section. And on day three, you know, we hadn't left the hospital yet. I was still recovering and just noticed um, around almost near midnight, I was uh, feed- breastfeeding her. And as I was patting her and kind of burping her, she, her body was moving in the direction that my hand was not pushing her in. So she was coming back towards me, mm-hmm. which I thought was weird. And I said, my husband was sitting in front of me um, pretty closely. And I was like, is she having a seizure? And I thought he was going to be like, you're being crazy. Like, and, and I had hoped that he would tell me that, but he did not. And he said, yeah, I think she is. And I was like, no, that's not, that's not what I want you. That's not what I want to hear. Yeah, that can't be happening. That's just oh, not- and I'd never seen anyone have a seizure. So I, I really had zero. I don't know why that even popped in my head, but I immediately was like, I, I think that's what's happening. Um, and so we told the doctor and they were like, mom, babies make weird movements. Let's just like calm the seizure talk down. And I was like, yep, I I have a baby. I've had a baby before and the baby, I understand that babies make weird movements, but this is not that. And Ben had actually, my husband, Ben had actually videoed um, that happening, which I was like, why are you video? I'm like yelling at him in the video. I'm like, why are you videoing this? This is traumatic. (laughs) But turns out that's what you're supposed to do when your kid is having a seizure. Um, And so he, the doctor was like, well, let's just, let's just see if it happens again. Cause she had stopped having them. Of course, when he walked in the room, nothing was right. going to happen. She looked like a little angel baby. And that was, they it. always do that to us. I know. I know. So, um, yeah, she was, um, basically they, it happened again a couple hours later and we called him in and they looked at the video again. Of course she stopped doing it when they walked in. So no one ever, ever saw it. And they were like, yeah, okay, between those two videos, that looks a little suspect. Uh, we're going to the NICU. And I was like, no, 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 like, no. We're going home. Going right? home tomorrow. Like, this yeah. isn't happening. Like, I am supposed to go home and have my normal life. Like, this is not happening. Right. Um, but instead, I think I was up for like 48 hours because <laughs> they ran a battery of tests. Um, they did an EEG. They did MRI. They did a CT, I think. Um, so it was like a very, like a barrage of, you know, things that you're like, no, 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 I just had a baby. Like, we're going to go home and have a normal, lovely little life with our white picket fence and exist. Um, but that's not what happened. And we, they hooked her up to an EEG and they said, yep, she's having seizures. In comes Dr. B. Um, we met her on, I think, like Lucy's day four, day five of life, something like that. Wow. Um, and just, I feel very lucky and blessed to have met her that early in our journey. Um, because I just, I don't know, there's, there's a lot of other stories that I feel like I, I could tell you that people aren't as lucky to find a really good neurologist that early on. Um, but we, you know, Dr. B was like, maybe this is, you know, we don't know, like maybe this could be, sometimes babies have seizures at birth and perhaps that's what's happening with Lucy. We just don't know at this stage. 
Um, yeah, so I really thought it was a benign condition. You know, there are familial genetics. In fact, you and your husband joked about that because your husband knows a lot about genetics. He does. That maybe this was, you know, fifth day fits or some, you know, benign disorder. She was so normal looking mm -hmm. and her MRI was normal and the LP was normal and everything that we had done. So we sent her home on phenomorbital thinking this, she sure. would not grow this quickly. It would be a quick, uh, yeah. normal kid who had had this history of just a couple seizures on day of life four. Mm. Yeah. Boy, do I remember that phenobarb. <laughs> that was our story, too. They love to throw that up. Yeah. Yeah, this she, big red blob. She did pretty, yeah, it is red, isn't it? I do remember that. Um, but yeah, we, so, you know, we went home and we're like, yeah, let's cross our fingers and hope that happens. And then I remember my husband, I was upstairs with my son and I remember Ben calling me downstairs and being like, don't freak out, but I think she's having seizures again. And I was like, no, no, this isn't happening. No. So mm -hmm. we went back to the hospital. They added Keppra. We we did a, a number of hospitalizations her first year of life. Um, doctor, I remember Dr. B in one of our EEGs uh, follow-ups um, was like, look out for, if she starts to do making these more sharp seizure contractions, like look out for that. And I was like, I think she's already doing that. And she was like, ah, I don't, I don't think, I don't know. I don't know if she's, she's doing it this early. And I was like, I feel like she does these like really like grimacing faces and like harder contractions. So we were like, all right, let's take another look. I think what month three of her life. Um, so we added Keppra that worked for a little bit, went a little bit longer down the road. And then uh, by month three, we had an infantile spasm diagnosis. So I think we were hospitalized maybe two other times. Um, and it was like very early onset of infantile spasms. So I think it was like whatever the EEG activity, um, in the background of that was like pre, pre. She, she wasn't quite fully, she had a modified hypsarrhythmic background. Yeah. So that EEG hadn't quite fully developed because I was following her so closely. And mm -hmm. then when we got that story that she had just had an EEG, mm -hmm. um, with focal seizures, um, and we started talking about flexor spasms, what they would look like. And then she had another ED 10 days later, and that showed she was emerging into that pathway. Yeah. So let's talk about the different kinds of seizures that kids can have. And then let's like zero in on what those infantile spasms look like. Yeah. Dr. B, do you want to take this one? Sure. Even though Erin and I probably could tell you all. I bet you could. <laughs> no, so um, so very small babies typically have focal seizures. That's what they, they have because the brain isn't matured. And those are often chronic seizures, twitching of one arm or one leg, bicycling movements. Mm -hmm. um, and then uh, there are many different kinds of focal seizures. There are focal seizures that are involving motors. There are focal seizures that can involve your impairment of your consciousness that older children can have. Um, and then spasms are believed to actually be driven by often a focal area. Okay. Um, and so, and then infantile spasms is its own category. Those can be flexor spasms or extensor spasms where the body flexes. Um, yeah, it almost looks like a sit up, like the yeah, arms and the legs like are coming together. Or, or it can you know. be a sensor where the head goes back. 
Mm-hmm. It can be really, really subtle with just the eyes roll up or down and there's a little movement of the shoulder. And are the children aware that they're having seizures during infantile spasms? Um, I think they are. Some of them may actually cry in between their seizures and become much more irritable than what they were before. Yeah. Yeah, that's what we experienced. A lot of shrieking and scared. You could tell she was so scared by her face. Yeah, often it's mistaken for reflux. So a lot of this, many of these kids have been to my doctor for a long time. We got that diagnosis first. (laughs) There you go. So that's often, so I... I think the key here is to know that it can happen in a child who has focal seizures early on uh, and to look out for it. Yeah. So, you know, when we got diagnosed and I'm not sure if you had this experience, Erin, because you had Dr. B and she was there on day four, but for us, it was a much longer journey and we got, kind of a pretty negative um, hospital consult. And we're told, oh, these are like the worst seizures you can have, which of course is not something you want to tell a brand new parent, (laughs) right? I mean, that's, that's just really hard to hear. But I think what, what the neurologist meant was that very often these seizures evolve is what I was told later, evolve into, you know, much more, um, lifelong conditions and can be a harbinger of like other conditions being there, right? A tell of other conditions. So am, am I right about that, Dr. B? Well, well, spasms are like fever, right? They're a symptom of something being wrong with the brain. They're not actually a diagnosis by itself. Mm-hmm. The same thing that, that seizures are not just a diagnosis by itself. They can be caused by lot, lots of different things. You can have a brain malformation and have seizures coming, spasms coming from the malformation. You can have a genetic condition that results in you having spasms. You can have had a stroke and have a spasm as a result of a stroke, or you can have an inborn error metabolism, a mitochondrial condition, or you can have, so there are all these underlying causes that can result in the child having seizures or having spasms. I see. Okay. And so what are the treatments for spasms? Um, We heard Erin talk about two pretty typical kids drugs that are used for for children having seizures, phenobarbital and Keppra. Um, But back, back in the day when 25 years ago, when we were experiencing this, they had to come in and give her shots. Well, those, those aren't treatment for spasms. Those are treatment for focal seizures, which is what she had first. Mm-hmm. So Lucy started off with focal seizures and okay. then he emerged into infantile spasms. There are kids who can just start with infantile spasms as their first seizure also, but that's the difference. So the treatment she was having was not a treatment for spasms. Those were a treatment for focal seizures. Okay. All right. That explains a lot. Yeah. So then what would the treatment plan be for spasms? Do you want me to? <laughs> well, so Erin, what was, what was Lucy's treatment tell us frontline, frontline, I think Dr. B would tell you the frontline defense is HCTH. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what we were put on, which is an injectable steroid that goes into the thigh. Um, 
each uh, each morning and each night, so twice a day for about a month, I think. Is that about right? And then, um, yeah, so we did that and we were probably seizure-free for maybe, that worked for a month, but you know, you have a baby on a steroid that comes with its, a whole host of other issues that open up um, from like rage to hunger to, you know, I would be breastfeeding her in the middle of the night and she would be insatiable and would want to eat and eat and eat and eat until she threw up. So then she's crying because she's hungry. She's crying because she threw up. She's crying because she had seizures. It was a lot during that period of time. So ACTH is not my best friend, but yeah, so it does, it does work for a lot of kids. So I, I still say if you can get a reprieve from the spasms, I mean, they're, they're difficult to watch, right? Like they're not presentation wise for a parent to watch your little baby seize is, is one of the worst things um, that I've ever experienced for sure. So, I mean, if you can get any reprieve from the spasm, I would, I would tell I would tell people to do it again. I would do it again. I wouldn't have not done it. Um, Mm -hmm. even with all of the side effects that come with it. Yeah. For us, we didn't have any relief at all. So we were in the group of people who, um, we just had to move on to something else. Yeah. Well, we did too. So that didn't, that didn't take for us. Um, it worked for about a month, like I said, like a month, maybe a month and a half. Um, and then she relapsed again and, uh, you know, I don't know. What's that? You did Sabral next. Oh, I did. Yeah, we did do Sabral after that. Um, and then we actually, Dr. B had recommended the ketogenic diet for epilepsy. As a result, Dr. B is the keto queen of Philadelphia, as we like to call her. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia um, is amazing. They have like a full program of keto. Um, it's like very immersive parent experience and patient experience to be on it. I was very, and Dr. B will tell you, a negative is probably a nice word. I was very like anti, like, this is not, you want me to change my daughter's diet? We were just on like six (laughs) anti-epileptic drugs and none of them worked. Like, why is changing her food going to make a difference? Um, It also involves a lot of math, a lot of measuring, a lot of cooking, a lot of Tupperware. um, (laughs) I like none of, none of the above. (laughs) So I was very like, no, this, how is this possibly going to work for us? Um, But that was the only thing that worked for us. So I knew it was going to work. I I knew that was the reason I on day of life four. Don't you think we have the world's largest keto center at CHOP? Yeah. Over 230 kids that I have built in my career there. And I met your daughter, but this treatment was going to work. Okay. I love it. Um, you, you probably, you can't see this audience, but I love that Erin has her name, her screen name as Unconquered. Unconquered. It is awesome. Awesome. I always forget to change it before I start. You should never change it. It (laughs) is truly who you are as, as the mom who is taking care of Lucy. Okay. So when did you get your underlying diagnosis? How did that happen? Um, before we have we started the diet, I mean, it was pretty early. So yeah, three months, I think. Yeah, it was extremely early. And that's very unusual. Most people go years without uh, really knowing the diagnosis. You got it quickly. 
Yeah, so we did a full genetic panel and mitochondrial panel um, after being in the hospital several times. I, I'm not sure which admission. I'm sure it was like two or three. In. No, I think it was this, this, the second admission to CHOP they sent off the genetic stuff that takes two months to come back. But oh, that's right. Okay. Yeah. Then that would, I, I blacked out a lot during that. Yes. Yeah. I know it's, you definitely have PTSD when it comes to all of those early days, the hospital stays, watching your kid get blood draw after blood draw. We did a fresh muscle biopsy. I mean, it is traumatic as heck. It is. Lots of trauma. Lots of trauma. So uh, that sounds like then around four or five months, you got Lucy's. Like three months. Like month three, three months. Three yeah. So she's, um, she, her genetic diagnosis, it came back, um, as STX BP one. Um, I like to remember it STX, like the lacrosse brand BP as in my husband's initials. And then the number one. Okay. <laughs> what so is it's, that a mouthful, it's an alphanumeric, you know, they didn't bother to name it because there aren't enough kids in the world that have it. Um, mm. so she was number 500 in the world that had it. The disease was only described in 2008. And so she, it was only 10 years old when she was diagnosed with it. So, wow. But they actually could, they actually did have a, a specific diagnosis that they could find on a yeah. panel. Wow. Yeah. That's and while great. it's, it's super rare. Um, it's actually, I wouldn't want to say common, but it is one of the top um, genetic drivers of epilepsy. 85% of kids with STXBP1 have seizures. I see. All right. But so she besides was my first this- with that mutation. Oh, okay. And that is what's happened is there's been such an explosion in learning about genetic conditions because of the epilepsy panels and the whole exome sequencing and the whole genome sequencing that's available. So we as physicians yeah. have to learn at the same time as our patients are getting diagnosed. That's what's exciting. Amazing. So I want to ask you about that in a minute. But um, just to kind of round up STXBP1, what does that look like? What does it mean? What do you um, know about it? Yeah, so it's a it's a neurodevelopmental disease. Um, it's, uh, people would say, global delays across the board, severe to profound. So a lot of the kids presentation-wise are nonverbal. Um, some of them learn to say a few words and phrases. In terms of mobility, there's gross motor impairments. Um, in terms of uh, some of the kids learn to, the, the range is really wide, right? Like, so some of the kids can walk, run, jump on trampolines, climb jungle gyms. Other kids are wheelchair bound. So we don't know where Lucy is going to end up on that spectrum. Um, so everything that I do- and she's walking. She is walking. She is walking. Yes. But I give her zero credit for nothing. I'm so hard on her. Her four years of life. I'm like, you're not an independent walker. Yeah, you you have to have high expectations. You do. Um, But she can walk while holding someone's hand. If you warm her up properly, Um, she can bear weight in her feet. She can lean on, you know, our coffee table and cross her one leg over the other and and stand there like she's waiting for the bus, like she's super cute. Mm-hmm. Um, she has awesome social skills. She looks you in the eyes and gives you this smile that just melts everyone in the room. She, she's very popular at CHOP. I'm pretty sure I have to schedule a lot of appointments so that people can just see Lucy. <laughs> that is great. That is so great. 
but no, she's very social. She's very sweet. She's nonverbal, but she is totally with you. Like she is, she loves attention. She loves people. She knows, like I was worried when she was born that she wouldn't know who I was. Like that was like my biggest, darkest fear is that I don't know if she'll even know who, like that I'm her mom. Like, I don't, I don't know that. Cause that's how she was as a baby. Um, like very out of it on a lot of anti-epileptics. And that was, that was kind of where I was at in my headspace, but I mean, she definitely knows I'm her mom. She definitely knows her people. She knows her brother. She knows her dad. She knows her friends. She knows her nurse. Like, and she knows when people like her and she, mm-hmm. she's gassy and she has a personality and she's mm-hmm. super sweet and fun and funny. And she laughs at things. That's cool. Um, what kind of support do you get at home? You mentioned a nurse. Yes, we have a nurse. She's wonderful. She's probably listening in the next room. Um, <laughs> she's the best. We had to fight for that nurse, didn't Me we? Because too. at one point her seizures were too well controlled. Yeah. yeah. They're like, oh, she's fine. She hasn't had seizures. Yeah. I'm like, but she could have one at any point in time. And then what? So there are kids that have her disorder that have sadly passed away um, from massive seizures. And I, I don't want that for Lucy. I don't want that for any kid. And so a, a nurse to me is critical to have her with Lucy throughout her day and taking her to school and monitoring her. Mm-hmm. Um, and also just for her developmental progress, being able to have someone with her um, throughout the day to help her into her chair, crawling around, like she still needs a lot of support. Yeah. Um, Lucy has a whole team of people Um I make sure of that. <laughs> so she has a lot of hours that I've secured in her IEP for PT and OT and speech. And I have an AAC person coming to the house once a week. So I load her, I, like her whole education could be therapy as far as I'm concerned. Mm-hmm. <laughs> AAC yeah. is augmentative communication, right? Mm-hmm. So that's fantastic. Um how do you get your nursing support paid for and all these therapies, et cetera? Do you access them through primary insurance, which is frankly rare, or do you use a kid's waiver um, through Medicaid? It's through Medicaid. Okay. She has secondary insurance that, um, that covers off on that. And they're, I think pretty good. We live in Pennsylvania um, and it's one of the states that I think, I think, from the stories that I've heard from our STXBP1 peers, um, yeah. like my biggest, I'm like, what do you do? Like move to Pennsylvania. Yeah. <laughs> I think or Massachusetts. <laughs> I think Dr. Beach, because we were in Philly for a while and living, you know, downtown in a row home. And we were like, she's like, do you plan on moving? And, you know, we live right on the border of New Jersey and Pennsylvania. And she's like, well, if you're moving to the suburbs at any point, don't move to New Jersey. Don't move to New Jersey. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> stay in Pennsylvania. <laughs> so I was so like, now, that's a very good piece of advice. Yeah. I want to ask you about your relationship as a parent and doctor. And, you know, we joked a little bit before we started recording about how Aaron is very vocal and very verbal. And Dr. B said, well, and I talk less and that makes for a really good team. And I love that comment. So, you know, we hear a lot of stories here and not all of them are positive about the medical community. And I want to just know what makes this relationship as respectful as it is and works for the best outcome for Lucy. Each of you can tell me. Yeah. I mean, I think uh, like the Dr. B like never, like 
unlike the doctors that we met in the maternity ward, like she never didn't believe me. Like she was always like, all right, well, if that's what you're seeing, let's get an EEG. Let's take a look. Let's see what's going on. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think she's always been in like her default is like to believe the parent. And I don't think that that's most practitioners first first inclination, right? They're like, oh, parents don't know anything. And it's like, well, who else, like, who knows my kid better than me? No one. (laughs) No one. Even at four days old, it doesn't matter. You still know your child the best. Yeah. And like, I know that she was only, but like, I tell every parent and like, trust your gut, keep being a squeaky wheel. Like, don't take no for an answer. Don't stop. Just keep Mm -hmm. saying it's not good enough. And well, Aaron's advocacy is really quite remarkable. I mean, their whole family. So mm-hmm. Louise's dad has put together a whole separate lab to figure out her mutation. Wow. That is, that is, you know, that's this family that Aaron has fought so hard to get all of these resources. And I remember being on vacation and taking a a call from the insurance uh, uh we were fighting insurance who had said no for something and i was on and there was aaron blazing through to get what mm-hmm. what we needed and that call made us get the nursing they were denying us several times over and over um but just that kind of you have and you created a new foundation to fundraise for mm-hmm. stxbp1 research I am telling you, if there's someone that will get a genetic cure from their own father, it will be Lucy. And it will happen because both of you are so determined. That's amazing. I admire greatly. Well, I love the mutual respect going back and forth between you two. And again, it's not as it's not as often that you see that. And hey, let's give it up to the doctors. You guys are busier than ever. There are less of you than there used to be. And it is really hard to keep up with the practice and deliver the care that you went to school to do. You know, you all started out with this ideal of what it was going to look like to practice, especially if you're a pediatric neurologist, for sure. And it can be really hard to do all those things, to take those insurance calls, to take, you know, 12 calls in a month from a parent who is going through a lot with their kiddo. It's, it's, it's hard. It's a lot. But it's a privilege to do what I do. I have always felt that way, that to be a physician is a privilege and to get to walk on this road next to Aaron and Ben and to get to be part of, of Lucy's life and to make her life better because that that's my goal is to never give up. So what would you say the number one tip is, Dr. B, for parents as far as how to be your best advocate? Because not everybody is born with the with the skills and the drive that my unconquered friend here has. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, what would you say to families who are struggling and who really need to up their game on the advocacy level? Well, you can have many different second opinions and not uh, some second opinions can be just to discuss the future treatments. At at one point, you have to trust the doctor also that they're making the right decision. Yes. Um, So that's where the give and take has to come from. But uh, if you think something is wrong and you're not getting a response as to why something is not wrong, 
or what we're going to do next to investigate it, then move on. Well, that can be hard to do. So for example, my daughter's uh, diagnosis was a mitochondrial defect, yep. disease, and there weren't doctors really. So how do you move on? It's, it's very look to see where you can find the person who specialize in that condition. I think to have, a, um, I have a couple of patients who have diagnoses that there are only three in the world. Yeah. And so I have sent them on purpose to see the physicians who have the other two. Yeah. Uh, and I think that has often led them to that. Okay. We are working on this together. Wonderful. I was Aaron. thinking like expanding your team, like, like widening your net. I'm like, yeah. I want as many people to see Lucy, touch Lucy, like notice Lucy, take her in, understand her. I want as many people to know her as possible. So like, if I, I've gone through a number of PTs, I've gone through a number of speech therapists, I've fired a lot, <laughs> even though they're free. I'm still like, nope, not good enough. So you, you just learn along the way, but like, I would just say like, don't be complacent. Don't, um, I mean, it, it's hard for me to say, I'm like, I had Dr. B like, at, like out the gate. So I feel very lucky, but like, if you don't feel like you're getting the right care or the right amount of attention or the right amount of people listening to you, like mm -hmm. going, like keep pushing through until you find something that you're sad. That's something that satisfies your curiosity or your needs. That is really great advice. Um, you know, as always, I'm running out of time because I just love talking about this stuff. But I do want to talk a little bit about your fundraising for your foundation that you have and what's the intention and, and how's that going? It's good. Um, so we established Lulu's Crew. Um, it's uh, part of the Million Dollar Bike Ride at Penn's Orphan Disease Center. So we are one of many rare disease teams um, we have we do a bike race every year. It's usually the second week in June, and we raise money for research um, and for her for her disease specifically. 100% of the proceeds go to uh, specifically to SDXBP1 research. So this year we were able to fund two different labs. Um, we'll be announcing that shortly in terms of who will be receiving the money. Uh, but the Orphan Disease Center does a lot of the legwork in terms of setting up the event for the bike race itself, water stops, all the logistics, the race yeah. courses, but also more importantly, the grant submission process, the RFIs that have to go out to the scientists who are coming up with different either basic science um, or, or something more translational. Mm -hmm. um, we funded a the first ever clinical trial for her disease. Um, it was a, a repurposing study for a drug that already existed in the market. And so that was something that we were able to contribute to. Um, I think that was in year one or year two. Um, so we've been able to do really meaningful work and really expand the footprint of her disorder and the number of scientists that are actually studying it because there wasn't, wow. there wasn't really much going on when she was diagnosed. It was like, you know, my husband's a scientist. And so he was like, well, surely people are studying this. And yeah. Really, we have a cure coming. Like, let's just find out when. And that wasn't really the case. I mean, there was a few people, but there, I mean, I mean, even from. But it is an interesting era because the, for the first time, I mean, so I've been a child neurologist for almost 30 years. And for the first time in, in 30 some years, we're now having genetic manipulations to cure neurological disease, starting with a, a SMA and it's moving on into epilepsies. Yes. Yeah. It's so, so it exciting. Is exciting that this is the direction we're going. 
It, it really is. I mean, the last 10 years have been phenomenal. I, I really, I, it hurts me that my daughter didn't live long enough to be able to take advantage of all of this, but I'm so thrilled and excited. How can people participate in your fundraising efforts? What's the best way for them to be in touch with you? You know, for being in marketing, I really need a shorter URL. Um, <laughs> I really just need to buy luluscrew.com and call it a day. I need to get on GoDaddy right now. Yeah. Um, it's it's not easy. I would just, I'm open on Instagram. So I have uh, people reach out to me that way. Um, E-Prosser, it's pretty straightforward, but there's a lot of Lucy content on there. I do have another child. He's also on there, but not as frequently. Yeah. Her therapy appointments are just so exciting. Um, so I do a lot of her daily progress and stuff like that in my stories. And then I post on larger initiatives, but I have a link to in my bio there um, for how you can straight donate. There's not very much money in there right now because I just reset it for yeah. year because we just close we close the fund in June once um, the end of June once the race is over, and then we start for the following year. So I'll start promoting it probably in um, probably the end of this month. It, the the race will open up, and I'll start to register team members and. Basically, I build the web um, of riders on our team, and we each of those people help to raise a little bit of money with their networks. And so, I just say I, I build the spider web, and then everyone helps me. So that's fantastic. It, it's really exciting. So everybody should go to Instagram and follow Erin Prosser, who is E Prosser, E P R O S S E R. We're going to have that in our show notes. Perfect. Your story reminds me somewhat of Lorenzo's oil. I don't know if you know that movie or remember that. I mean, it's before your time, but it, it it was even before my time, but it was really inspirational to me. I actually met Lorenzo's mom at one point and they did the same thing. They took a diagnosis that was not well known um, and started investigating and doing research and raising money and starting trials. And it's just Fabulous. Not everybody can do this, but when one of us steps forward for the rest of us, it is just amazing to see what you can do. I have the sign behind me, create the things you wished existed. And I live by that motto. So, and I can see you, you do too. Yep. I, I saw that in the background and I was like, <laughs> oh, that's, that resonates hard with me. So. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Well, I thank you so much for being on the show, Erin, unconquered Prosser. It's so great having you. I really, really loved meeting you. And I love seeing stories and pictures about your daughter. So thank you so much for sharing your family with us and for doing all that you do. And Dr. B, my gosh, thanks for spending time with us and giving time to this. Absolutely. And I just want to tell parents with spasms who are treatment resistant, give the diet a try. Mm -hmm. don't feel that it is too difficult it stopped the seizures completely for lucy and and really since she stopped having seizures is where her developmental progress really came up that's when the big difference happened when we were able to stop them and she's still on the diet not on the full ratio we can do lower ratios and make it more palatable we made lots of changes to make it uh you know, more like a regular diet for her. And until you know, we have a genetic cure, I have a feeling she'll be on a, a low ratio. Uh, I want to try, find a center, come yeah. to pop, join our keto class. 
come to chop them all. And they do, they do an excellent job of um, making it. It is a difficult diet to, to take on and to follow. And, but they prepare you so well as parents. There's a whole team of, there's a chef, there's a, there's dietitians, there's nurses, there's a social worker. There's, they have a whole team of folks there. And of course, Dr. B leading it all. Um, So it's, it's, I would always tell people like, it's worth trying. Like it, it's not easy, but it, if someone told me to pack my stuff and we're moving to the moon and your kid's cured and that you're not going to see another seizure again, guess what? We're going to the moon. There yeah. we go. Yes. <laughs> so, um, you know, I, you would do just about anything to not watch that. I would do just yeah. about not watch yeah. that. So where can parents learn more about this? Are there some great websites to go to for the ketogenic diet? chop.edu which is uh, the information site and put in ketogenic diet you can find out a dietary treatment program at chop you can find out all about our program and how to support it it's all there excellent you should, uh, you should also be admitted you should make sure that you do like a full admission through a clinic you shouldn't go rogue right yes like, it's not the keto diet attend our class in fact this morning we just had our keto class we had 15 families who joined uh they're doing it virtually right now so that is you can find out whether this is something truly for you mm-hmm. it's a two-day class three hours each day so six hours of education that we're doing for families who are interested and we have people joining us from across the united states wow uh, and then people flying in and, and getting started so that's great that's really great that's that makes things so much more accessible for people can kids uh, here i am like continuing this conversation yeah. i really need to like <laughs> let you go but can kids who are tube fed be on a keto diet sure we have formula yes. but we also have families who do blenderized food Okay. They want to give their kids the organic chicken breast and broccoli. And so we use fat and oils and that's how we do the diet. So we mm-hmm. have formulas, both soy based and, and cow protein based. That's amazing. Yep. Thank you so much. Yep. Thanks for answering all my questions. It was so great to talk to somebody, especially another family with infantile spasms. I don't think I've ever met anybody else whose kid had them. Really? Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, maybe they did, but I just didn't know it. But um, there's like two thousand new cases a year. Wow! In the United States. Wow! Wow! That's a so lot. So it is a pretty common condition. Yeah, and we see probably at least fifty cases at shop a year. Wow! If not more. That's that. I had no idea. Yeah, I had well, one other friend in my circle that had one, uh, but I ended up joining a Facebook group for infantile spasm support, which was hard and helpful. (laughs) Okay. So these are the things we did not have 25 years ago that parents today are so lucky because the social media connections are amazing. They can also be not so great, right? It's one of the best places of social. It's the, it's hard sometimes to take that all in. Yeah. Um, But sometimes it's nice. Sometimes you're offering advice. Sometimes you're asking advice. Those it's one of the better aspects of Facebook, I would say. Yeah, yeah. So absolutely. I've just enjoyed this so much. I really appreciate you both taking your time out of your day to be here. Thank you for talking about such tough stuff. And please let us know if there's anything else that you'd like to add, and we'll make sure it gets into our show notes. Awesome. Very good. Nice to meet you. Thank you so much for having me. Hey, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. 
I just wanted to take a second to say how much I appreciate you taking the time to listen to these podcasts. I'm having a blast doing them, and I hope that you're finding the content to be what you were really hoping. If you are, please take a second to leave a rating and a review. It's so helpful in getting this content out to people who really need to hear it. Thank you so much.